Good evening. Um, how lovely to see you all here on this very warm day. Nick's going to start by reading the first couple of pages of this book, which is a re really good read for those of you who haven't read it, so I would recommend it. Yeah, I, I thought I'd start by reading the first couple of pages because it kind of says what the book's about and why it's called what it's called. Um, and it also tells a story. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was that for 12 years, I had a permanently captive audience, I, particularly at one Wednesday mornings when the weekly planning meeting used to happen with my associates, and on Friday mornings when the company meeting used to happen, which is all comers in the canteen. Um, and I was able to tell my stories over and over. <laughs> They always, they always laughed beautifully, although, although uh, by the 12th year, you could tell the laughter getting, getting a little bit weary. And then when I left, I thought, I've got to put these stories down on paper now because there's nobody left to tell them to. So here I am, um, and I'm ashamed to say that the story around which the first two pages are arranged, I've told several times at previous National Theatre platforms, so tough. Um, <laughs> In a National Theatre rehearsal room, Michael Gambon has been wrestling for three days with Alan Bennett's new play, The Habit of Art. Michael has given many prodigious performances at the National, most recently Falstaff in Shakespeare's two Henry IV plays, though there were occasional memory lapses which he covered with Elizabethan rhubarb. I had a couple of letters complaining that my production had made Sir Michael incomprehensible, to which I replied politely, although he's a famous hoaxer, so he may have written them himself. One of them compared him with suspicious pomposity to that admirable Shakespearean and model of clarity, Simon Russell Beale. <laughs> he now seems much less confident than he was as Falstaff. He's playing an old actor who's struggling with the part of the poet W.H. Auden to Alex Jennings's Benjamin Britten in a play about Auden and Britten within a play about a theater company putting on the same play. Alex, has an almost mystical faith in the great tradition of British acting, so he's urging Michael on. With them on stage is Francis de la Tour, who, in the face of life's absurdities, has an eyebrow permanently raised and a voice permanently tuned to deadpan. <laughs> She's playing a stage manager, and I'm sure that she can nurse Michael through anything that goes off-piste. But at the moment, he can barely get to the end of a sentence, and then suddenly the blood drains from him. He staggers and falls into a chair. We call for help. An oxygen tank is hurried into the room, then a stretcher. Michael's wheeled out, the oxygen mask over his face. One of the stage managers goes with him in the ambulance to St. Thomas's Hospital. As he's carried into A&E, she asks him whether there's any message he'd like to take back to the rehearsal room. Don't worry about those bastards, he says. They're already on the phone to Simon Russell Beale. <laughs> And as he speaks, I'm with Alan Bennett and the rest of the company recasting the part. <laughs> Simon Russell Beale is doing something else, probably making a documentary about Renaissance choral music. He's as erudite as he is audible. So he's not in the running, but once we know that nothing serious has happened to Michael, we barely have a thought for him. We're in the canteen, overlooking the river. Tourists 
houseboats glide under Waterloo Bridge and glum office workers stare at computer screens in the building next door while we make a list of actors who are available for the part, all of them distinguished, none of them immune to our brutal assessments of their suitability. By the end of the day, Michael's been advised to withdraw from the play and I've called Richard Griffiths, an actor renowned for his delicacy and wit, but also for his immense girth. Alan has already written lines to justify the casting of a fat actor in the part of Audin, who, although dissolute, was not even plump. You start with a vision and you deliver a compromise and you're pulled constantly in different directions. So although you want the actor who plays W.H. Auden to be as much like W.H. Auden as possible, you know that the play will work best with an actor who can remember what the playwright wrote. <laughs> you know that what works generally trumps all other considerations, and you also know that if you care only about what works, you'll end up with something slick but meretricious. You want a play to be challenging, ambitious, nuanced and complicated. You also want it to sell tickets. You want playwrights to write exactly the plays they want to write. You also want what they write to reflect your own image of what your theatre should stand for. You want your theatre to vibrate with the rude, disruptive energy of the carnival, but in your heart of hearts, you recoil from the chaos. You seek intimations of celestial harmony. You want to look into the abyss and make sense of human misery, but you flinch from pretension, despise self-importance, and take refuge in irony. You want Shakespeare to be our contemporary. You also know him to be writing very specifically about a world that's separated from our own by 400 years. You want to tread a tightrope between all your conflicting impulses to find poise and balance. But you despise yourself for your caution. You want your work to be full of jagged edges and careless abandon. That's Brilliant. what the book's Brilliant. about. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as you say, that explains the title of the book, Balancing Acts. Um, this is like a sort of um, pragmatic mission statement, isn't it? Yeah. Um, can you paint a picture for us? I'm rather fascinated at the moment about how quickly theatre fashions change and how aware audiences are of how quickly they change. Um, it might be to do with the fact that I'm 50, whatever I am. Um, but I wasn't aware of that when I started. But in 2003, when you took over, what was the... What was the environment? What was the ecology of London theatre at the time, or, or British theatre? You talk very eloquently about the, the rise of the little black box, for instance. Yeah, I was incredibly fortunate, which I say in the book, to take over at precisely the time when the purse strings were being loosened. Um, through the 80s and 90s, they were tightened, uh, and uh, less money was available and all performing arts institutions were encouraged to charge what the market could bear. Uh, and here at the National, um, there were a string of really beautiful productions, if you remember, of um, classic Broadway musicals, real landmarks in the history of this theatre. Uh, but uh, it was proving increasingly difficult to fill the house for a lot else. And in particular, it was proving, because of the shortage of funds, very difficult to take risks on big new plays. Uh, and this meant that as a result, particularly during the 90s, a lot of new, new playwriting um, retreated into small theatres 
it wasn't only a retreat. I should, I should retract that word, retreat, because another of the things that happened, partly uh, as a result of, um, this was all how it felt to me at the time, partly as a result of the shortage of funds, is that an enormous amount of energy went into creating new spaces, um, small spaces. Phenomenal things were happening, but they were happening for a small audience of um, clued up theater goers who knew where to find it. Um, almost in response to that, um, and also in response to the brilliant work that emerged from the Cottesloe here, uh, as was, and the other place and the uh, Donmar warehouse when uh, the RSC took that over, um, brilliant work was happening. And the Almeida were doing that yeah, stuff, of course. The Almeida <laughs> and the Donmar in the 90s, um, under Ian McDermott, John Kent, and Sam Mendes at the Donmar, started to do phenomenal classic work, also on a small scale. And what I thought when I threw my hat into the ring for the National was that uh, it was time to try and insist again. Uh, this is, all of this is in the book insist again on the value of a really public theater, a theater which was, as it were, central to, um, to uh, the general cultural discourse. Uh, I was unashamedly one of the insiders. I used to go to these theaters, and I'm sure you, almost by definition, you've turned up to, to this platform. You, if you were around, used to go there too. Um, but uh, I wanted and you directed little um, black boxes twice, as well. twice only. Actually, I, I directed once at the Almeida and once at the Donmar. Um, and uh, I've, I've always, partly because my training was in opera, I've always been very, very happy and very excited by yeah. large stage, stages and big audiences. Um, one of my, one of the experiences that really brought it on to focus with me was working at the Donmar for Sam Mendes. Um, doing a Tennessee Williams play, Orpheus Descending, with Helen Mirren. And it was, she was wonderful, the play was wonderful, it was a great experience, but it was seen by 200 odd people a night. And I thought these plays weren't written for, the, for small theaters. The Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, Eugene O'Neill plays were written for Broadway in its pomp. Um, our great classical repertoire was written for great public theaters 400 years ago. And I wanted to get playwrights writing in a big, muscular, public fashion as well. So that was one of the things I came in wanting yeah. to do. And you were conscious. I mean, it sounds a silly question, but you were conscious of that. You, you came to, when you applied for the job, you said something needs to shift a little bit. I, I thought... Um, or did this develop over uh, the, the uh, A lot years? of this happened for, uh, d d right at the start, because I talked this all through with Nick Starr, who I started talking about uh, running the National to, um, as I was applying, I always knew that um, uh, that if I got the job as artistic director, he was who I wanted to work with as yeah. executive director. Um, and I think he, who is, uh, again, I say this in the book, um, extraordinarily well-versed in, um, in producing theatre and in negotiating the thickets of uh, public funding, um, he reckoned that m more funding was on its way, as indeed, and that is, that was the bedrock of, um, of what we were able to do. More money, more money arrived round about the turn of the century. Um, 
what's happening now, obviously, is the tap is, um, is slowly being turned off again, although I'm hopeful that it won't be turned off, uh, at least in London, to the extent that it was in the 80s and 90s. Um, I want to, because I want to, you, to come to the environment now. Um, when you talk about the change to little spaces, uh, big plays in little spaces, as you say, fantastically successful, and also the introduction of um, major film stars. I remember that coming in in the 80s. I, when don't, I, I don't even think it was particularly made. Yeah, <coughs> yeah maybe it was. I, I I'm remember only phenomenal work, and, and I'm in no way saying that this Naturally work, would, that no, this work no. was in any way deficient, and I'm thrilled that it, that it still happens. Um, I love seeing huge plays in small rooms, but I didn't think that that was necessarily the Nationals' job. But I remember, because I remember seeing Ken Branner do Edmund here, which was a major moment for me of seeing actually a small play in a huge space. It was exactly the opposite um, dynamic. And as you say, there's neither a right or a wrong. They're both, they're both valid. This is a big public theatre. Yes, and, so, and, so, and I remember talking to Ken about it. He had the next door dressing room saying, uh, that he really believed in that idea of taking... It was, it was an amazing technical feat that Ken did. But it was, it, it, I think it also links in with a whole series of changes in the way that we, we acted as well. Yeah. I think there was a change, and we've mentioned this before, but um, one of the things about when actors die now, we very often have recordings of them that we can play at memorial services. I mean, it's an, always an amazing moment to hear somebody's voices. But we've both been at, and in fact you mentioned one in the book, yeah. a memorial service of a very great actor, and you heard him perform, and, and that feeling that we could not perform like that now, that there was... Um, I'm talking too much. There was a movement down into, na into a type of... Naturalism changes, that's what I'm saying. That's o the point, the isn't it? Naturalism changes. changes. It's not that we suddenly become it's not better or realer or no. We know it's 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 no. how how we perceive reality changes. Yeah. E almost every story about actors, almost every serious story about actors and acting, um, is about <coughs> the new generation telling the old generation that they're ridiculous and artificial, and the new generation shows the old generation how real it can be. But the really good stories then show the new generation, the penny dropping with the new generation, <laughs> that there is an enormous amount to be learned from previous generations. It, one of the you directed a play about this. I mean, Cressida. I did, I did direct a play. And one of the most gambling. touching things, one of the things <laughs> I find about, uh, uh, that I've found, you know, both of us have been around long enough now. Um, here's what happens with really good actors. The young ones, um, whenever I do a, a play where young actors and experienced actors, very experienced actors are on the same stage, you can tell which of the young ones are going to themselves become really good because they never stop watching. And even when they don't think they're learning, they're watching, they're working out how to do it. Um, History Boys was such a great example of that. You always, they were in the wings the whole time um, watching how Richard Griffiths did it and Francis Latour did it. But the thing that I find enormously moving is that you can see it happening the other way around too. That the, the older actors, you quite often find them <coughs> looking at the kids, saying, 
God, she's doing something that I, I've not seen before. What's she discovered? What's going on now that I didn't know when I was younger? Maybe I can pick mm. up something from that. And that Ian Richardson yeah. was always like that. He was, absolutely. He was always like that. He yeah. was always sniffing around going... Um, <laughs> he was. He, he was. And the, 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 the alchemist, alchemist. yeah. 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 Um, the other thing was the rise of the designer. When I first came to London, mm. perhaps it's <laughs> the designers have always been there, but there was a moment when suddenly... And I think this is, that has gone on right way through your period in the National and is still going on. The, the incredible contribution that there was a sudden... The wonky sets period, remember, when, when I first came to London, which was, must be the mid-80s. Fashions change in design um, as well, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. But they became very, very... Suddenly they became uh, creative, a creative force in a way that I hadn't remembered from my mm. childhood. Uh, but your childhood, you grew up with RSC touring? I did, yes. I, I, I did. I, 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 um, my childhood and adolescence were in Manchester. Um, and one of the very first things I remember sending me absolutely sky high was an RSC tour of the Merry Wise of Windsor, where in which Ian Richardson played forward. Oh, yeah. And I remember seeing that touring to the Palace Theatre Manchester. Um, and I, oh gosh, I must have been 11 or 12. Um, and sitting, finding Shakespeare genuinely, painfully funny was obviously a formative experience. Ian Richardson, I actually do mention this in the book. It was, we were fortunate enough um, when we did The Alchemist to be part of Ian Richardson's last performance yeah. um, and he, as Sir Epicure Mammon in The Alchemist, yeah. and he was wonderful. But I remember him as Master Ford g turning every color of the rainbow when, when uh, Falstaff, when in disguise he visits Falstaff and Falstaff tells Ford that he's about to bed his wife. And it, it seemed to be the funniest thing I've ever seen. I also remember uh, the, the Merry Wives themselves, Elizabeth Spriggs and Brenda Bruce. And I can remember the, the funniest line I had ever heard in the theater, Brenda Bruce going, and if you know the Merry Wives of Windsor, you'll realize why it's funny. If you don't, it's too long a setup. <laughs> Brenda Bruce <laughs> going, look, here is a basket. And I can tell you, it, <laughs> it, it completely stopped the show. Mm. And that was when I realized what actors can do and how good Shakespeare is. And you acted a bit. And you, your great pal from school was Stephen Pimlot. That's and right, you, yeah. And you did GNS and yeah. all that. Yeah. So would you say your background, therefore, was... And then you went into fairly quickly into operas. Well, you went to university and yeah. directed there. I are you a classicist? Are you a, are you a traditionalist? No, I don't think I'm a traditionalist. Uh, the, other, the other formative, the other play I remember vividly from my early teen, teenage is um, uh, I had a most wonderful English and drama teacher, a, a kind of a, a Hector from the History Boys without any of his faults. And he used to, he used to take, the, he used to take the, the, the kids who were interested in theatre kind of, you know, we were on a rotor and he used to take us to the theatre. And I got taken to see, it must have been very shortly after it, it had been in the West End, what the butler saw. Um, and it must have been very shortly after it had been in the West End, very shortly after Orton was murdered. Um, and I was just old enough to realise that um, 
Sir Winston Churchill's cigar wasn't necessarily a cigar. Um, <laughs> and uh, old enough to find it funny, but not quite old enough to know exactly why it was funny at every point. So, I've, so I, those, Orton and Shakespeare kind of did it for me. So, so you're, sub, you, you're instinctive subversive as well? I don't know, honestly. I, I don't know. I, because I, it, well, I, I enjoy I can, making I can, mischief. I can, I can, rec I can recognise a Nick Heitner production. Uh, would, uh, so I don't think you're the sort of director who just follows in you know, footsteps. No. So you have a very particular type of um, very hard-edged narrative push in all your productions. And it's yeah. very sharp. And also the comedy is very good. So, so a Nick Heitner production is, is something that one can define. Um, I'm, I, you see, I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Um, you, 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 you'll have to tell me that. Yes. Well, no, no, I, well, well I, think, I think you're an auteur. You, you, you once said to me, I'm, I'm not an auteur. No, not I don't think I'm an auteur. I, I very strongly don't. I, I, I think... I, That's I, what I was leading to. I, <laughs> I, think, I, I think the British theatre tradition is playwright-led. Um, it's not director-led, which doesn't mean to say that I do not admire and enjoy, and I'm not fascinated and excited by theatre that is put together by directors who are themselves leading. And, you know, the, in the process, very often, in the process of putting a show on, very, it does involve the director um, being the one who pushes it from um, first day of the rehearsal to opening night. But uh, I personally, as a director, always respond to a play I always respond to something that has been written. Uh, I say this in the book. There are some playwrights um, who give you a watertight, finished text. Uh, they don't let anybody read it until it is exactly how they know it must be. And amongst... Pinter was famously like that. And amongst uh, the playwrights that I've worked with, Martin McDonough's like that, um, and then Alan Bennett gives you a, a, a first draft to which he wants a response. And then other playwrights um, start with a sketch. It, it, it's, all of these are totally valid ways of putting together a play. But I think our theatre tradition, which doesn't mean to say in any way that this is, covers everything that happens, um, is to its benefit playwright-led. Playwright is, is that why you... I mean, it's your chapter on film is quite interesting. Yes, I mean, I you sort of enjoyed. Yes, I did. I did but but I d I d well, I don't reckon myself to be. I mean, I reckon well, myself that's to be. That's director's medium, is what I'm. Yeah, uh, well, I reckon myself to be better employed uh, in the theatre, more useful in the theatre. <laughs> and actually, the films that I've enjoyed making have been written by playwrights. I'm, I, I'm useful to an Alan Bennett script, and in the movies, that's about it. Yeah. Um, Shakespeare, uh, the modern dress Shakespeare, which became a sort of. That became a Nick Heitner. Yeah, but we mark. did much ado. Um, oh, certainly, and, uh, and uh, nowhere near. Henry the Fourth, I did, was not in oh, anything like true, modern yes. dress. But did the modern dress thing come? We agree on almost everything about Shakespeare, which is yeah. this going to be a very boring part of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But the the Iraq War, the Afghan War, Henry the Fifth, which was the sort of was the first production here. That was, that was the um, first Shakespeare I did as director of the And National, of course, yeah. quite by chance, it sort of... Or well, was it by chance? It, it was fed by into contemporary... By chance. It was totally by chance, I assure you. I'm not clairvoyant. It was by chance that 
we started rehearsals two days after Allied forces invaded Baghdad. Um, it was by chance that we rehearsed the St. Crispin's Day speech virtually on the same day as Colonel Tim Collins famously addressed his regiment outside uh, Baghdad, uh, consciously, I think, echoing the St. Crispin's Day speech. But it wasn't by chance that uh, it was a play. It was chosen um, as, a, as Shakespeare's commentary on what we were going through. Uh, um, it, it, uh, it was chosen in the wake. I chose to open with it in the wake of um, the... Uh, campaign against the Taliban in Afghanistan, which I'm, I say in the book, I at the time thought was justified. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't chosen uh, as, um, as a kind of anti-war polemic, which of course is not what the play is. You could play it as an anti-war polemic if you wanted it. You can play Shakespeare as virtually anything. But nor is it um, a, a piece of tub-thumping chauvinistic propaganda and when Olivier made the film in 1944 he had to do considerable violence to the text to make it that which let me hurry to add does not I think make his film of it um, any less valid or any more partial than any other production because Shakespeare's any Shakespeare production any rendition of Shakespeare has got to be partial you ever hear anybody tell you I just want to do the play you know you're in trouble because <laughs> you can't. You always you, the the play. This is one of these where I we agree. Yeah. yeah, the play, the text on the page, and I write about this at length, and we do agree about this. Is half the story. The the event, the show. Um, or let me let me. It, 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 I, I, this is semantics, but the text is half the story. The play involves the contribution of the actor. Um, in other words, the play is going to be different every time. Henry V in the hands of Adrian Lester is by definition not Henry V uh, in the hands of um, Laurence Olivier. Uh, and if you're going to do it in the wake of British military action abroad, about which um, by the time we started to think about the show, um, there was an enormous amount of doubt as far as its justification in international law is concerned, the play is suddenly a different play. And I don't think doing Shakespeare in a contemporary setting is, uh, is remotely tendentious. It, it's what happened in, what, 50, in the 1590s and early 1600s. Did, did we do time in? Was that It was in the wake after? of the crash. It was, it was in, in the, the wake of the crash. We did it in 2012 as part of our contribution <laughs> to the Olympic <laughs> celebrations. <laughs> um, but it was, of course it was in the wake of the crash. Every time that play's rediscovered, there has been a financial crisis. Yeah. That's, that's what happens. Yeah. It's, no, seriously, <laughs> seriously. Uh, there was a wonderful <laughs> production that uh, Trevor Nunn did at the Young Vic, the last, the one that, that um, uh, I think the, the last time, you know, time in it, uh, 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 supposedly an obscure, Ill, uh, not uh, seldom performed play, well, it turns out that it's, it, if there's um, a big financial crisis, you can absolutely guarantee that people are going to do it. You know. um, that brings me to this quote that you make. Is it Granville Barker of, the, of what the, or is it Shaw? Of what the National Theatre should, should do. It's the one thing it, it's yeah. The one thing it doesn't mention is, is response to contemporary events, does it? No, I but think that it, I think it says, you know, you, um, keep Shakespeare going, yeah. revive neglected modern classics, introduce new writing. Yeah. But there is, but I got the sense during your time here that there was, that you felt there was 
a need for rapid response. Yeah, Although, in fact, it, actually, yeah. that doesn't necessarily, of course, produce good plays. No, no, no. no. I mean, one of, the one, of the, one of my favorite bits in the book is when I own up to an absolute catastrophe called Greenland on this stage. Um, not very many performances. Um, and the, you can't. So something I believe very strongly, actually, is that um, in the end, the good plays are going to come when playwrights want to write them. Uh, and we used to sit around saying, who's going to write the global warming play? And nobody was writing it. So in the end, we decided we'll generate it ourselves. And four very good playwrights were sent, into, sent to the studio and told to come up with material about climate change. And their contributions were chopped up and juxtaposed. And um, it, they all had ideas which could have made perfectly good plays. Um, and it was just terrible. Um, <laughs> And one of the occasions, and they did happen every now and then, when I wanted to stand out front in the foyer and shout, go home, go home. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, A bit like the moment when Timon discovers gold. For those of you who have read the book, <laughs> he puts in the book that, that every time he saw that moment, he wanted to hide his head yeah, under it the... Yeah, it was a shocker. Yes, it was it was a glass, but it was yeah, a good show. It was, it was a good show, and I bad moment. it jolly well. Yeah, you did. <laughs> It was entirely my fault. Entirely, <laughs> no, no, entirely my fault. Um, no, you were also about the Greenland thing. Yeah, so, so well, well, it was a, uh, it, to our shame, it opened at more or less the same time as Richard Bean's play, The Heretic, opened at the Royal Court, which was about um, a climate change um, heretic, a climate change de denier, not quite a denier. And it was an enraging play, but it was a brilliant play because what Richard Bean was interested in was the predicament of someone who was denying current orthodoxy. And despite the fact that what that character uh, believed um, felt to me to be plainly wrong, it was, it was the character who was believing it, not the playwright. And it was a wonderful play, because he, and he wrote it because he fancied writing it, not because someone in a planning meeting had said, we need that, a play about climate, climate change. Yeah. You can't do it every day. You, you're lucky if you've got playwrights who, um, James Graham's obviously one of them, and David Hare's another, who can respond quickly to current events. That's great when that happens. I mean, David Hare, is, I was just about to mention, because he's a very good example of just leaving enough time, presumably for the facts to settle. I remember stuff happens, seeing stuff happens, thinking, that's brilliant. You've just put all the facts that I actually know, because I've been reading the yeah. papers for the last two years. No, but he's a but great in, synthesizer, in David. Yeah. But, but what about Alaki Blythe, who actually takes um, the very stuff of what's happened, um, the dialogue that has been said, the things that people have said to her, and makes oh, amazing theatre out of them, amazing theatre. I'm looking at my watch, because um, to round off, would you read that last? I will, I'll read the last three paragraphs. The, this, is, this, is, um, this is actually a giveaway of Nick's, because it's, it's a tradition of the National Theatre that he, very private um, tradition, that actors do, yeah, and that I he I got involved with. This, is, this is actually the end of the last chapter. There's a bit of an epilogue after the last chapter. It's the end of the last chapter. And the reason it's in, actually, is because when I showed you the very long first draft <laughs> of the book and asked for notes, you said, why isn't that in? Oh, did so, I? Yeah, oh, you did. Oh. So I'm, so I'm oh, going to... Thank, <laughs> yeah, oh, thank you. I'm going to... And just to remind you, he's signing the book. At the, uh, the thank you very much, Simon. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, this is, this is actually how... Um, I end the book by recalling... Um, I begin and end the book by recalling the 50th birthday uh, show that we did in November 2013, when so many of the great actors from the national past, amazing. it was, it was amazing. amazing. I mean, you know, the, um, talk about actors learning from each other, actors who will be around in 2063. Um, 
shared a green room with Maggie Smith and Derek Jacobi and Judy Dench. And, uh, you know, that, that moves me to think that those actors who will be here for the centenary of the National Theatre um, will be able to tell, <laughs> um, oh, my God, the children of actors who are not yet born, that, that they were there. But it was, um, uh, uh, it was an amazing event uh, and incredible number of wonderful actors were sharing the building. And, and there's a photograph of it. There is, yeah. Uh, before the performance, I go backstage. There are five floors of dressing rooms facing each other around a central light well. It's like a women's prison, says Maggie Smith when I knock on her door. <laughs> Actors are leaning out of the windows, shouting encouragement and obscenities to each other. Plumes of illicit cigarette smoke curl from Michael Gambon's window. <laughs> Frances de la Tour also has a cigarette. She's never come across a rule she doesn't want to break, so she's smoking for the revolution. <laughs> I go from room to room to thank everyone and wish them good luck. And I'm in with Alex Jennings and Simon Russell Beale, when the stage manager calls beginners to the stage. Softly at first, the room starts to shake. I look across the light well and see that in every dressing room, actors are banging with their palms against the windows. It's what happens at beginners' call on every opening night, and it carries with it the terror of prisoners on death row, <laughs> hammering at their cell doors in tribute to the condemned on his way to execution. But tonight, it's as if the starting gates have opened on the derby and a hundred thoroughbreds are thundering towards the finish. I stand with Alex and Simon and everywhere I look are the actors who have marked my life at the National in a frenzy of drumming. So I start drumming with them and I think I'm going to miss this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.